have access to Scripture this morning, we'll ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. If you didn't bring a Bible with you or you don't have it on your phone, there's a Bible in the front of you in your pew rack there. But we're looking at Matthew chapter 22, verse beginning in verse 15. The poet Robert Burns wrote this, The best laid pl- plans of mice and men often go astray. I think most of us could say amen to that. Probably your day hasn't gone like you planned it already. But we're going to look at some, some people that have it all lined up, and it doesn't quite go like they expected. So I would encourage you to have your Bible open throughout this morning because we're going to break this passage up in several sections. Because as we begin, we find a, an historical narrative about several groups of men so enslaved to their man-made traditions that when they see and hear the reality of Jesus Christ, it is absolutely unbearable for them. Because they're going to encounter the true light. That's how Jesus is referred to in John chapter 1, verse 9. He's referred to as the true light. And the true light has come into the world, and for them, for these, encounter, these men who are about to encounter him, this is absolutely unbearable. Because they're secure in this darkness that they live in. And they're so outraged at this challenge that they're determined to extinguish this light altogether. Now, as we've been traveling through the book of Matthew for several months, we've seen on our journey that Jesus has challenged them again and again, hasn't he? He's challenged their views about fasting, about Sabbath keeping, about divorce, and on and on we can go. Just about everything that they had come to hold so tight. Just like we see regularly today in all kinds of press conferences and interviews and network news, they had come with some gotcha questions. You know, those trick questions where if you speak this way, you're in trouble. If you speak that way, you're in trouble. But they've come to gather this evidence in order to justify an arrest. They're after Jesus. So in Matthew chapter, or verse 22 there, excuse me, verse 15, says, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Now, pause just a moment before we continue. These plans involved questions that were designed to give evidence of his heretical teaching. They considered him a heretic. They believed that they have a plan. But, as Robert Burns wrote, the best laid plans of mice and men often go astray. And remember, We're not talking about just any encounter. We're talking about an encounter with Jesus. So verse 16, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In other words, when did you stop beating your wife, right? They're gonna, they think they've got it all lined out. Verse 18, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, 
Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Well, Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And we'll pause here for just a moment. This is a really interesting picture. Because you have the Pharisees and the Herodians coming together. Now, why is this interesting? The Pharisees were nationalists. They were completely opposed to Roman rule. No way, no how. While the Herodians, they supported the Roman ruler, Herod the Great, and his dynasty. So they were very, very separated in how they viewed life. But it just shows us again that opposing views can come together when they find themselves with a common enemy. So younger men, disciples of the Pharisees, and, the, and then the, also the Herodians, came with this premeditated and supposedly well-crafted question. Matthew reveals their motives when we see that the Pharisees had plotted to trap him with his own words. Think of it like we see today with reporters asking politicians questions, expecting he or she will answer in a way that causes them to put their foot in their mouth, and then they take several days or even weeks to try to explain their way out. Except in this case, they're not looking to trip Jesus with a trick question that makes him look bad. They're coming to put Jesus in a place where he's going to sign his own death sentence. And they set this up in the temple, a supposedly safe place. If he had said, no, don't pay taxes to the Roman emperor, he would be talking sedition. He would be saying, we're going to stand against the government. Now, I remind you that resurrection, or insurrection rather, insurrection is a difficult place to be. But particularly in this day and time, and particularly about the most powerful army in the world, most powerful government in the world, there in Rome. This was serious. Rebels were shown no mercy. So what will Jesus do? They approach him with, Jesus, you are such a straight shooter. What do you think? Should we pay this tax? Yes or no? How often do you see that? You ask the question, it's yes or no. We want you to just, yes or no. Well, they are right. Jesus is a straight shooter. And, and so he probably, I can just see him, don't you? Leaning in just a bit and looking at them and saying, you bunch of hypocrites. Which causes them to back up. And then he asks for a coin. He asks for a denarius. A denarius was a, a coin that um, would be a day's wage for a Roman soldier or perhaps a day laborer. And we know from archaeology that the portrait on the denarius was likely the head of Tiberius with a crown of bay leaves, as you see there. The inscription would say, Tiberius, Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Under, you could think divine Augustus. In other words, a God person. On the other side was a picture of a seated woman symbolizing peace. There the inscription was high priest or God and high priest. Now for the Jews, this was a real contradiction to what they believed because it, it contradicted the first two commandments. 
He's accenting their hypocrisy. And this is how he's doing it. These pious men, they were separatists in their beliefs and politics, standing there in God's holy temple, and they were holding what they would really say is pagan money. So holy hands holding idolatrous images with blasphemous inscriptions. Ouch. He was just underlining the fact that these men were not all that they said they were. But he asks whose picture's on the coin. Now think about it. Occupation, living under Roman rule, wasn't very easy. But on the other hand, there's another view of this in that what had the Roman Empire brought to the world? Well, there's some upsides to Roman rule. They started democracy. They created a number system that we even still use today called Roman numerals. They invented concrete. They invented bathhouses. They taught the world how to build roads, how to build aqueducts. The Roman Empire provided water, sanitation, roads, law and order, and police protection. They brought much to the world in the areas of agriculture, education, and architecture. And then was it really not, was it really that much to ask of Rome to ask the people under them to pay taxes? Of course, the downside of all that for the Jews was they were being occupied. They were being, it was colonization. It was not a good place to be for the Jews. And if you refused to pay taxes, you could find yourself hung on a cross or perhaps killed outright. So just as, the Jesus, just as Jesus was challenging, challenging the Pharisees' loyalty to God, as they held Caesar's coins in their hands, he's, he's challenging us today as well. Do you serve money or do you serve God? You can only serve one. Do you seek first your own rule and ways of living or the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Those are some questions that you can pull from this scripture passage this morning. When the Pharisees and Herodians heard Jesus' reply, they marveled. And then they just went away because they didn't have anything to say. But folks, that's the opposite of what we are to do. The go away part. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're not to just marvel. We're to worship. We're not to leave and go away. From Jesus. We're to hang on to him and we're to follow him and we're to believe in him and we're to trust in him as the girls just sang about. We're to give back to God. We're to give adoration and allegiance. We're to give treasures and talents. We're to give our hearts and our heads and our bodies and our souls. We're to give everything and in return He gives us everything we need. Verse 23. Here comes the next group. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. 
The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. And finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Now remember, these were the experts, and he just told them they didn't know the scriptures and they didn't understand the power of God. Verse 30, at the, res- at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, do you remember story problems or word problems in math? If you were challenged by math, they probably gave you, a night, probably gave you nightmares. But this is kind of a word problem. This is kind of reminiscent of word problems in math. Uh, these Sadducees thought they were going to stump Jesus with a word problem. But as he usually did, he goes straight to the heart of the question. He didn't come from out here somewhere. He just went right to the middle of it. For most of us, the idea of true love forever is ingrained in us, and it's in our hearts. So when I read this verse 30, it said, At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. That probably jumped off the page to you, and we will get back to that in just a moment. But before we talk about that part of it, don't miss the significance of what the Sadducees coming to Jesus with this story problem, this word problem. Don't miss the significance of it because the Sadducees did not believe there would be a resurrection. They're asking Jesus to explain a problem with the re- an issue with the resurrection, they thought. All the while, they didn't even believe in the resurrection because they couldn't find a clear teaching in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, the law. And because they didn't find it, or clear teaching, they had discounted the resurrection. They said there is no such thing. But this question originates or started with them from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 6, where Moses said this, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So this is where this question, the the core or the kernel for this question came from that they're asking him about. Now, this law was called the Leverite Law. This was a law given by God to provide economic and social protection to widows. It also guaranteed the continuing on of a family name. So this was from their history. This was something that Moses had dealt with. It gave a woman a chance for a future if her husband died young. Because in those days, men owned everything and women didn't have any rights. So the biblical question or basis for this question, it comes from Moses, it comes from Deuteronomy, it comes from the Bible. And therefore, for the Sadducees, it came from God. That was a question they could ask because they were sure God had originated this idea in their heads. To the Sadducees, this was a proof text that their 
that there was no resurrection and it was inconceivable that there could even be a resurrection. So for them, it was biblically and philosophically absurd the thing they were asking him. So they were looking to trip him up. So they thought they had set the stage. They thought they were going to invalidate Jesus' predictions of his own resurrection, as well as his teachings about eternal life and the resurrection of the dead. They thought they had him. Jesus makes the point that eternal life in heaven will not be the same as they're experiencing now. Now, don't misunderstand, though. It doesn't mean we're going to be angels. Sorry, you cats in the back. I know your moms told you you were angels. I just want you to know, in heaven, we're not angels. Actually, it's better for us that we're not angels. Angels have been around for a long time. I don't get to be an angel. And you're going, yeah, we know that. Uh, But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to forget about all your earthly relationships. The point is, our existence in heaven is going to be so much greater and better than we can know now. Marriage is a reality of this life. A very important reality, but it's of this life. The life that is to come will be so much more than our relationships here. So much more. We're not even sure how much more. It's hard to describe. Some of you know that um, I was married for 25 years to a wonderful lady by the name of Lorinda. After about five years of suffering with back issues that included three major back surgeries, powerful medications, and unrelenting pain related to uh, scar tissue, she died in 1998 at the age of 46. Way too early. Way too early. And you know, in the weeks following her death, I realized that I had not spent a lot of time studying what the Bible and what scholars had to say about our lives in heaven. So I began to read and study. Read God's Word, read what other people thought about what it said in God's Word, and I discovered that commentators were in agreement that Scripture teaches that our relationships are going to be different than how we function here on earth. What that means, we won't know until we get there, but we know that our relationships are going to be different because the glories of heaven are so far beyond what we can understand or know. So as I sought these answers, I was reminded And it came through in a very powerful way that God loved me and I needed to trust him. And whatever was ahead, I needed to trust him for whatever was ahead for me, as well as for this great lady I had lost. As she spent her time in heaven. Two years later, God brought Shasta into my life. And he allowed me another opportunity to love and to be loved by a wonderful lady. So I consider myself a blessed man in a number of ways. And we've been married 17 years. And she's still with me. Now, while the loss of a spouse is painful, and it is, whether you're a man or a woman without yours, we're not left here to just wait on the opportunity for heaven. We're to be busy. 
We're to be about the Father's business. So if you've lost a spouse, God has a purpose for you. That's why you're still here. I believe that God takes us home when he's through with us here. But until that comes, I have an obligation. I have a calling. I have responsibility to serve him. And so if you've lost someone, if you've lost a spouse, if you've lost whoever means a lot in your life, know this, that the God of the universe loves you and is aware of whatever hurt you've been through But he has a great plan for you now, as well as a great plan in the future. We're here to fulfill his purpose, and he's going to take care of us all along the way. Now, in verse 32, Jesus is quoting from Exodus 3, verse 6, when he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. This is a well-known, it's often quoted verse from the Torah. Because these Sadducees were accusing him, he used scripture. He used scripture that they would be familiar with. Instead of trying to bait them with ideas, he used this verse to remind them that God still had a covenant with his people. And his blessings and his promises would not cease with death. So Jesus was trying to say to them that their view of death would mean that that at death, God's covenant would be over. It would be broken if there was no future, if there was no resurrection, if there was no someday. And the the Sadducees had missed that fact. They had missed the link between God's faithfulness and the resurrection. So that's why when Jesus finished, everyone was astonished. And then in verse 34, here comes another group. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul And with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now this is the spot in a press conference when a reporter will ask something to kind of take the tension level down. They'll ask a question that maybe they really do want to know rather than try to trick the person that they're asking the question of. I say that because... If you look in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34, Mark also records this encounter with this particular person. But Mark records it in a way that suggests it's not quite as controversial or confrontational as perhaps we get the impression from from Matthew. So this scribe, this lawyer, this Pharisee, this um, expert in the law is seen by Mark as being someone supportive that Jesus had just tried to blow away the Sadducees and he kind of wanted to kind of want to be supportive of him in some way. We see the question asked as perhaps maybe a, well, a way for Jesus to answer it better, to answer it well in a way that made it very clear. So Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5, again, using scripture that they all know. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all... You may have heard that earlier today. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. To the Jews, this is known as the Shema. It means here. And it's from Deuteronomy 6.4, the verse just before the Love the Lord passage, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, this is spoken at the beginning of every synagogue service. At home, the Shema hung on their doors, on their walls. Faithful Jews and their families, they quoted this daily, morning and night. So this was a, a passage that the whole culture knew. And they also knew Leviticus chapter 19, 18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, for those of you who've been involved in studying scripture, you've come to understand that when something is repeated, we are, partic- we are more needed to take notice. Sometimes we read through passages and we get in a hurry, but when something is repeated, the understanding here is it's more significant. Perhaps there's a greater urgency. There's something we need to take from this because it's been repeated in Scripture. Jesus' repeated ver- use of the word all, that was to nail down their need as well as our need to give ourselves totally to God. A total response to his lordship in our lives with all that we are. All your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Total devotion, not a half-hearted effort, but all, all, all. God is to be first in our lives. Not second, or third, or fourth, or fifth, or fiftieth. We're to love God more than everybody else and everything else. And then we're to love others. And we see this in the cross. There's a vertical and a horizontal dimension to the cross. The cross reminds us in the vertical dimension of our relationship to God. The cross also reminds us in the horizontal piece, the horizontal dimension, the command to love others. So we who've taken this as our symbol, are to love God and we're to love others. It's a really incredible picture. One commentator wrote this, although love of God and love of humanity were occasionally affirmed separately in Israel, there's no evidence that before Jesus they were ever combined. It does not appear that any rabbi before Jesus regarded love of God and neighbor at the center and sum of the law. He was the first one to say that the Shema must be completed by a love for one's neighbors. We're supposed to love each other. And I don't read that we really have a choice about that. Now, I'll admit there are things that irritate me about you, and there's things about me that irritate you. But at the end of the day, it's like family. We can't get away from each other. We're there. We are connected. We're commanded. We're expected to love each other. This is the first time it had ever come together. 
And it happened right there. So Jesus asked them a question in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus kind of, it's time for me to ask a question. Jesus asked him, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, and this is from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, that's a quote from Psalms. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Well, no one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So after the trick questions, after the gotcha questions were over, Jesus turns the table on these religious leaders using Psalm 110 verse 1 and said, to show that the Messiah would be human, he would be an heir to David, and he would also be divine. He would be David's Lord. And here was the Messiah, both human and divine. Here he was standing before them, and they frankly didn't know what to do with that. They didn't know how to respond. Which brings us back to our first quote. The best laid plans of mice and men often go astray. There's a lot of truth in that. You see, these puffed up fellows thought they were challenging some itinerant rabbi from a small village at the end of nowhere. They didn't realize they were trying to go toe-to-toe with the Son of God. And he just kind of blew them away. Because he had the truth on his side. And they came for a scalp. They came for an award. They came to make a point. They came to get him in trouble. Three questions from Jesus can be seen here that the Pharisees needed to answer. And these same questions are questions you and I need to answer. First of all, am I the Christ? Jesus is saying, am I the Christ? He's saying that to all of us. Do you believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah? First of all. Secondly, am I the son of God? Do you believe that Jesus was more than a prophet? Is he in fact divine? Is he God in the flesh? Is he really who he said he was? And am I the king of your heart? Have you submitted to Jesus not only with your head, but with your heart? Maybe the first one, yeah, sure, I I believe Jesus was the Christ. And... I believe he was the son of God. But, you know, there's little pieces that I want to hang on to, God. There's little stuff I'm really needing that I'm not really wanting to give to you. Because, you know, I've worked hard for this or that or or to get to this place in my life or to be who I am or to have this job or whatever. But here's the deal. Here's what this passage Reminds us of that he is the first thing above everything. 
So I guess our question today is, have you surrendered your spouse? Have you surrendered your children? Have you surrendered your parents? Have you surrendered your house, your job? Have you surrendered your finances to him? Have you surrendered everything to him? Because the God of the universe that loves you more than anyone else, who's given you the very breath you breathe, who are we to hold back? Why, if you haven't given all of that to him, why haven't you? Why is that so difficult for us? Why are we who call ourselves God's people continuing to hold on to stuff that we're not willing to surrender to him? People that are more important in our lives than him. Things that are more important in our lives than him. Why would we risk it all instead of putting him at the first place? So that all these other things can fall under it. A loving Savior died for me. A loving Savior died for you. Gave his very life. Most important blood ever bled. How can I do any less? How can I hold back? Are you holding back this morning? Is there something new you need to give up? Something you've just hung on to? Maybe it's something or someone, or maybe it's an attitude or a feeling or a guilt or a hatred or something you're not willing to give up that's keeping you from letting God be first in your life. What do you need to let go of this morning? Now, what we typically do at this point is offer an invitation. Now, let me tell you what an invitation is. It's not where we try to get every one of you to come down here at the front so we can rack up numbers. It's an opportunity for me to quit talking and the Holy Spirit to really have an opportunity to speak to all of us. Because I'm sure there in in my life, I've got things I haven't been willing to give up. So what are those, Bill? And I bet there's a few things in your life that you have trouble letting go of. What are those? Why? I think this morning for all of us, is an opportunity to look at the Savior who risked it all, gave it all, and to stare at the question, why not? So I would encourage you this morning. We're going to stand and sing. Musicians are going to play. We're going to sing, and we're going to give each of us an opportunity. Perhaps it's to get on our faces, to kneel where you are, to come down here and pray. Perhaps this morning, all of what I've said really doesn't make a lot of sense because you've never let go and let God have his plan for you loose in your life. Perhaps you've never been willing to let go and receive the Savior and to say yes to him. 
Whatever you need to do in this next few moments, I pray that you will as we stand. And let's pray together. So, Father, when I consider all that you've made possible in my life, I realize how small I am and how great you are. As we consider the fact that heaven is more than we can even imagine, I'm reminded again of how small I am and how big you are. And when I look at the year, through the years at the way you've blessed through loss as well as through prosperity, I'm reminded of how awesome you are. And for all of us, we could think that means we're insignificant. And yet, you've proved your love again and again and again. So this morning, I pray, Father, that whatever we are holding on to, we would be willing to let go of this morning. So that when we leave from this place... Our hearts will not be so heavy. Our burdens will not be so great. And we'll be, have been reminded of your love shining through, as John says, the true light of Jesus. So, Father, work in this place. Work among us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.